Destiny, Pocket Money, Sixth Generation Farmer, and Rutherford Dust. You're on the road with Chuck Kramer, Mr. California Wine. I live in London selling cases of damn good California wine across Europe for their Tolado family. And this podcast is about California, the Golden State, my home state, and its awesome wines. This week, I'm chatting with the Vice President of Winemaking and Vineyards at St. Supri Estate Vineyards and Winery in Rutherford, Napa. Every week, we're going to have some fun and ultimately improve your boozing. Back in February, I met up with this week's guest at the gorgeous St. Supri Winery in Napa to have a chat about their graceful yet powerful cabs and their estate vineyard, the Dollarhide Ranch. If you haven't paid a visit to St. Supri, you need to go on your next trip to Napa. The winery is located on Highway 29, the St. Helena Highway in the Rutherford AVA. And if you want to know a bit more about this prestigious AVA in Napa, check out my talk with Emma Swain, St. Supri's CEO, Season 3, Episode 7. But back to my guest this week. My guest was born in another valley, the Barossa Valley in Australia. He's a sixth-generation farmer, having grown up on a vineyard in the Barossa Valley and earning pocket money as a kid, doing family chores on the family farm. When I was a kid, I earned money by mowing the lawn and picking up after our dog in the backyard. I bet my guest as a kid grew up hosing down the cellar floor and cleaning out fermentation tanks. I guess you could say that his future was set in stone as soon as he was born. Call it destiny. These days, my guest has been crafting stunning wines at St. Supri in Napa for over two decades. That's a long and successful run. And he's obviously making all the right moves, all the right decisions, producing spectacular Cabernet Sauvignons and other wines harvest after harvest. His approach to making great wine is shared by most winemakers in the Napa Valley. His wines are an expression of their two estate vineyards at St. Supri, which include the Rutherford Estate and the famous Dollarhide Estate Vineyards. My guest refers to the Dollarhide Vineyard as a valley within a valley and covers over a little over 500 acres planted to King Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and other grape varieties. And what makes this vineyard so unique, so special? Well, there are several factors, including Rutherford Dust, coined by perhaps Napa's greatest winemaker, Andre Schechelchef. What is Rutherford Dust? Well, stay tuned and you'll find out. Hey, I need to get back on the road. I've got the VP of winemaking and vineyards waiting for me in my Zoom green room. So buckle up. Here we go on the road. A quick word from the buyer. The buyer.net is your connection to the premium on trade. The buyer.net is your on trade platform, linking key industry leaders, influencers, producers, and suppliers in order to improve reach and awareness in the UK hospitality sector. My guest this week is a sixth generation farmer and winemaker from the famous Brosa Valley in Australia. His career kicked off at the family's estate, the Willows Vineyard, in the 1980s. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Enology in 1985 at Roseworthy. 
Australia's version of California's UC Davis, then traveled the world perfecting his winemaking skills in France, South Africa, and California. Today, you can find my guest at St. Supri Estate Vineyards and Winery, where he's been making wine since 1996. You're on the road with Mr. California Wine, and my guest this week is Michael Schultz, Vice President of Winemaking and Vineyards at St. Supri Vineyards and Estate in Napa. Michael, great to see you again, and thanks for being on the road with me this week. Great to be here, Chuck. Great to be yeah. here. Yeah, I think we were just chatting earlier, and I was out there, what, I think early February when you gave me a tour, and we had a nice tasting there at the winery there in Rutherford, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a good time. It was, it was fantastic. It was good to have you here. Yeah, and no, I'm looking forward to coming back. Right off the bat, Michael, I want to ask you, what put you on your path? this wine journey, were you inspired by someone? Uh, was there like one wine well moment that said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? It was a little bit of, a, of, of destiny, really. You know, I grew, I grew up in, I'm Australian, of course, and I grew up in, in a place called the Barossa Valley, which is kind of by the Napa Valley of Australia, kind of. And I grew up on an old family vineyard. So a really, really old one. In fact, I'm sixth generation on that property. Um, and it was, you know, settled by my family in 1845. So I grew up in a vineyard. My dad was a doctor, but he, but he also and a farmer, and then grew grapes and sold grapes uh, off of that family estate. And so, you know, as a kid, what I'd be doing is my pocket money. That that's that's what I where I'd go to earn, earn my pocket money is out in the vineyard, out in the field. Uh, Whether it was driving, was a, I was a little kid, I'd be driving tractors and digging holes and pounding posts and doing what pruning, doing whatever needed to be done to earn a dollar. Um, and uh, so I, I started in the business that way, but my, my dad was, um, he knew, was a friend with lots of, a number of winemakers around the district, but a couple of people particularly, but or one really person particularly, which is Peter Lehman. And so Lehman uh, was a big, big part of my life through my, his friendship with my father, which was a very close friendship. And so he would be at our, our house as I was growing up on a regular basis for barbecues and, and, and what have you. Uh, and, um, and Peter Lehman, actually, when he built his winery, lived on, on a house on our property. Um, so I was always around the vineyards and always around sort of winemakers and such. Um, and... And I guess that sort of led to where 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 I got to today. Um, so, so yeah. <laughs> so Peter Le Peter Lehman, big name in the Australian wine industry. That's a, that's amazing. And this uh, this family winery. Now, are you making wines? You selling grapes? What's happening back in the Barossa Valley with the family? Still, no, still that still happens. So um, all of the above, actually. So uh, my brother and I actually, and my father started a, a wine business. Way back in 1989, so I was pretty young. Um, but prior to that, we'd been my dad had been a grape grower, um, and to this day, we still blend those things. It's a very tiny little winery, um, and and we and selling grapes as well. Okay, what's the name of the winery? It's called the Willows. The Willows. The Willows. The Willows. Why the Willows Vineyard? What's the history there? Uh, you know, it has a very old history. In the fact that. Um, my uh, my family had a, had a medical background, so when they first arrived in Australia, they were German settlers. Um, Barossa was generally a German settlement, um, 
And they left Germany uh, and they as a village and they bought the land sight unseen, got in a boat and they floated across, uh, I think it took them about seven weeks or so to float to Australia. They got off and they found the land they purchased sight unseen and they distributed it between all the, all the families. Um, and, of course, the city was a long way away because in those days it was by horse and dray. And so there wasn't any medical facilities. So my great-great-great-grandfather who came out with his son uh, had been a doctor, uh, had been a bone setter in the Prussian army, actually. Um, and he was the only guy that had any medical expertise. So he, like, by default, became the village doctor, essentially. His son followed suit and every generation followed suit, th right through the fifth, which my father was the first university-educated doctor in the in the whole <laughs> tree there. Um, wow. But what happened was they, they built a, a, a hospital on the property that was opened in 1988. Um, and it was the first country hospital in all of Australia, and it became known as the Willows Hospital. So that be and that was essentially because there was a, a little river that ran through the property, um, and they had they had brought willow trees with them and had planted willow trees along that 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 river line, um, and and the property became known as the Willows. It was always the Willows. Amazing story. So you you uh, you earned pocket money growing up there on the winery. You did your chores there on in the in the vineyards and on the winery. I mean, ha harvest happens at different times between northern and southern hemispheres. So obviously, you got a full time job there at Saint Supri. Did you go back to help out and make wine? Are you still involved at in some way? Uh, through the years, I have been I have been involved, but 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 from an arm's length. So. So, yes, I have been involved through, through time. Uh, I do get back there typically. I'm, I typically have been back there a couple of times a year. Um, but um, uh, but I don't go back at harvest time per se because I've got a lot to do here on my own. Yeah. <laughs> at at St. Supery. <laughs> yeah, I know you're I know you're I know you're busy. So growing up then in the family business, is this is this where you learn to make wine at the family winery? And then after that, did you go to school? What was the path? Yeah, no, I mean, yes, no, no not exactly. So basically um, I went to, I, I studied at a college called Rosalie Agricultural College and I studied enology. And in those days it, you'd study winemaking and viticulture all, all combined. Um, and I did that. And then um, uh, I went and, and out of college, I went and worked in cellar floors like so many of us do, of course. I'd already had a lot of vineyard time, um, so I, I knew a lot about vineyards just by the fault of how I'd grown up and the fact that I was active in the, in the vineyard with various things. Um, but after I got my degree, I, I, I worked in cellars and obviously I particularly worked in, at Peter Lehman. I worked at a couple of others, like I worked in, uh, in the Hunter Valley as well, which is another Australian region. Um, at a place called Rothbury Estate, also at Tyrrell's. Uh, but most of my time as a seller guy was at Peter Lemon Wines. Um, and then my first job as an assistant winemaker, I worked um, uh, under a guy called Frank, Frank Newman. Frank Newman was a super interesting guy, great, great individual, super interesting guy. Um, and I was really fortunate to work with him for a little bit. He uh, And he had an interesting history. In the fact, he... Um, had, had been a cellar hand working under Max Schubert. Now, Max Schubert is the guy that created Grange, um, and Max Schubert has a really story history, and he is he is the creator of Australia's most famous red wine, that being Grange, um, and, and 
uh, Frank Newman reported to him and, and Max Schubert sent him off to, to Rosalie College to study winemaking, brought him back, and Frank Newman became the first winemaker of Grange after Max Schubert. I worked for Frank Newman um, for a period of time, and he, he was a, a, a real instigator in with the directions I took um, from that point. Amazing. So you have these like big names to lean on, Peter uh, Lehman, uh, Frank Newman, Max Schubert. Um, was there like a, a piece of advice that each one gave you that um, stays true to this day, that sticks with you? That um, You know, as a young winemaker, you worry about a lot of stuff and you panic about a few things <laughs> along the way. Uh, what Peter Lehman, you know, his piece of advice to me was, you know, that um, don't worry about it so much. It'll all work out. Um, no worries. Okay. <laughs> typical, typical Australian. Okay. Right. Okay. So that that was a, that was a pretty cool piece of advice because you know because um, over over a little time I started to realise that he was right. You know, we have issues, we have dilemmas. Sometimes we have dramas and what have you, but we we all do iron them all out at some stage, sooner or later, and and things do come together. And uh, and that was kind of a cool piece of advice. Allow me to be work out that it's okay to be a little more relaxed about things um, with that. Um, and, uh, you know, Frank Newman, he was just a good, he was just a good mentor sort of guy. He was just a good guide, very even-keeled fella um, and what have you. Max Schubert, I didn't know. Max Schubert, a very famous character in Australia or history, in, in Australia's wine history, but I didn't actually know him personally, um, but really just know a lot about him, you know. Well, some good people to lean on, though, though, between uh, Peter Lehman and um, Frank Newman, right? Yeah, absolutely. A good foundation to get you on your uh, way. So let's fast forward. You've been at St. Supery there um, in Napa, in Rutherford, in the Rutherford AVA since 1996. What was your first role there and what keeps you there? So when I joined in 96, I joined as winemaker. And soon after, uh, not that long, uh, well, yeah, not that long after, I became vice president and winemaker, um, and that, that was went on for quite a long time. I've actually, and, and Chuck, I've actually had two tours of duty at Saint Supri. I left for a little while in the early two thousands, did another project for another another entity where I developed the vineyard and built a winery, which was interesting. But then once I was done, I got a call back to come back here. So I've, I'm on my second tour of duty. But I've done, but all up, I've worked about 20 harvests for St. Supri alone. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, that, that was my, my role then. My role today is I'm actually, they call me, uh, the official title is Vice President Winemaking and Vineyards. So I look after, I look after all that stuff, which is cool. And I like it. It's, it's kind of busy, but that's okay. Um, but I'll, I think it's a great thing because, um, if you want to make good wines, you need to be able to grow grapes well, um, and I'm a believer in that. So, be able to be oversee viticulture and winemaking is, is a real advantage. But and that keeps me here because I like all those things. I mean, I, I'm a winemaker and I love making wine, but I actually get have very rewarding to to grow grapes to run a vineyard. Um, okay. Farm. So I take it then your philosophy then is basically you want you want to make wine that the vineyard gives you. Every harvest is going to be different, right? So you're basically putting the bottle what the vineyard's giving you. How many people on your winemaking team? There's two winemakers. We have a winemaker and an assistant winemaker, uh, Brooke and a, and a, a guy called Asael. Um, and Brooke's fantastic. She looks after things 
and does an incredible job. Uh, and we, of course, we have uh, supporting seller, seller staff and a really good team. I mean, um, one of my one of my our seller team actually I, I hired back in 1998. So we have a really cool cool wow. seller team here that's very very stable and and uh, and they do a great job. In the vineyard, we've got a we've got a crew of about uh, um, we've got a couple of uh, managers in the in the field, the ranch manager and vineyard manager, and we have um, viticulturists, and we also have about ooh, Probably about sixteen or sixteen or eighteen field staff who, um, you know, manage various tasks. What have you? As we go through the season. Okay, so what's in terms of your role as vice president of winemaking and vineyards? Obviously, you're you're there you're there in the vineyard. You're overlooking that famous Dollar Hyde Ranch uh, vineyard. But in terms of winemaking, are you still involved on a day to day basis of that process? Or are you more of a manager now? I'm still involved in, on a day-to-day process. So, uh, so when it comes to um, to harvest decisions, I I'm, I, I uh, get involved in all of those. So um, I work with the, the winemaker, but essentially I'm still calling all those harvest day, harvest decisions. When it, once that fruit actually gets to the seller, Brooks taken on a lot of that day-to-day uh, f- work on the seller floor because um, in my role. I end up having to deal with whether it's harvest or not harvest. I've got a lot of other umbrella things I need to address. So I need a little time to work that out. So she does it. She's really capable. She does a great job uh, in managing the seller and, and the winemaking uh, through that processing there. Um, but she and I get together several times during the day and discuss strategy. Um, and then when it comes to the end of harvest, when we start looking at blends, I'm, I get very involved with that. And, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune since my since I first started at St. Supery. Uh, I've worked with Michelle Rolland, so I've worked with him since 1996. So um, he's he's consulting he's consulting for you then there. Correct, correct. Okay, I mean, he, he works with works with us and has worked with me since 1996 uh, during my time at Saint Harvest has begun. Harvest has started in in Napa. Uh, when did you start picking? What did you start picking? Take me through uh, this uh, time period here. Yeah, so Chuck, we started on August the 9th, uh, and um, and we always start pretty much the same blocks. We know what's going to roll in first. They're pretty consistent year to year. So I've got some Sauvignon Blanc that's on shallow, on elevated shallower soils. So they tend to be a slightly smaller vine and ripen quite quickly. Um, so I always start with those. Um, and, I'll, and I'll also bring some of those in on the, 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 the lower ripeness spectrum um, with intent. So it works quite well. So I start with that, kicks things off. Get some fruit into the cellar, allow us to run the operation here, make sure things are going to work properly. And um, then often I'll take a break for a few days, three or four or five days on most seasons, and continue to roll in with that same type of vineyard, which is uh, shallower soil elevated vineyards that we have some Sauvignon Blanc on. And we need to and be aware, of course, as I'm sure you are, that Sauvignon Blanc is an earlier ripener. So we're always going to start with Sauvignon Blanc anyway. But I've got a, a spectrum of Sauvignon Blancs across our property out there. Um, everything from, from a hillside Sauvignon Blanc to, to deeper soil, loamy soil Sauvignon Blanc. Um, some that are sandy loam, some that are slightly clay loam. Uh, so I have a, a, a variety of spectrums across the way there. And therefore, they ripen at different rates and different times. So we end up starting quite early, but we'll probably, our Sauvignon Blanc our window will probably run for about three to four weeks. And then when do you start picking cab and the reds? How 
how deep into the calendar year does the harvest go in terms of picking the reds? Well, generally, I'll, I'll start thinking about pulling some some reds in. Um, of course, we're a Bordeaux-style house at St. Superi and um, Cabernet dominant, of course. But the, the reds will generally start somewhere in September. Um, by the time we get to the first week of September, I'm having to think about what to start with. Um, by the time we get to the end of the first week of September, I generally have a, a, a harvest on the books, something that we're going to pull in. Um, now, of course, every year is a bit different. That's sort of rough, a rough idea of where we end up. When it comes to the, the, the window of harvest where we run to for the to end harvest, probably run through the end of the third week of October or the last week of October. And I have had seasons where I've, put, I've, I've picked out into the first week, end of the first week of November before. Um, but, but generally it's late October by the time I finish. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of this, uh, this, uh, this harvest, 2022, obviously water scarce. We haven't had much rain in the state. I mean, haven't had much rain in the state the last few years. Any outside of like lack of rain, any big challenges that you faced or has it been a fairly, you know, easy, not easy, consistently good harvest? Any big challenges? So for this particular season, I think um, we've actually had a pretty, quite a good season, actually. I think the season's been rolling really very well. We've had really nice uh, weather and temperatures. And what, as we've gone through here, um, I think it's been quite an even season. August has brought a few more heat units, but not 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 too extreme. Um, and it's not unusual in August to get a bit of that. So that's that's to be expected. So I actually think the seasons look exceptionally good so far. I, of course, like everyone, rain and water is on front of everyone's mind because we've been short on that. 2021, the season leading into this one, was a the most significant drought season I've actually worked with since I've been in California. Um, 2021, 2021 was the biggest drought year for you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, biggest, big. I mean, we, I mean, we're normally looking at 20, 25 to 30 inches of rain in the season. We got uh, six in the whole in the whole season. Um, that's pretty pretty freaking dramatic. And that was after twenty twenty, which is also a hot drought year. Um, so that was that was a, uh, a bit of a challenging year. But but there's a so we've got another drought year now. However, not nearly as significant as the previous one. But we've had weather conditions that have been very conducive towards high quality grape growing. So in in, S, in general, when you get a drier season, it generally often leads to high quality red wines for sure. And if you get uh, this more moderate temperature uh, spectrum, that also leads to the same thing. So at the moment, I'm quite optimistic about um, wine quality generally, and certainly red wine quality as we get moving forward further into that uh, at the moment. So yeah, I'm optimistic about it. That's good to hear. And in, in terms of like when you have the scarcity of water, you know, we're in these drought years, does that have an impact in terms of production, how much you're able to make? So you're not going to get, say, a bumper year. How does this forget about 2020? I'll ask you about 2020 in a second. How does like, say, 2021, 22 compared to, say, 16, 18, 17, to that, 18? To that, 2018. 16 was slightly dry year. 18 was a pretty good year. Um, yeah. You know, when you have high rainfall, you typically have high yields. It also comes down to your water supply because you know we are in California. We are we have we have a we're one of two percent of the Earth's surface here that has 
uh, Mediterranean climate. The Mediterranean climate is cold, wet winters and warm, dry summers. So being warm and dry is not unusual to us. It's just that we've had ex some extreme, um, there was a bit extreme in 2021. You know, that, that, but mind you, what that did lead to, is, as you've alluded to, is the lower yields. But, of course, again, with lower yields, don't forget that often that's associated with high quality. And in 2021, vintage looks very strong, um, very strong. And then 2022, with our weather conditions and what have you, looks strong as well. Um, you know, while I'm worried about, I'm, I'm like everyone else, we're all talking about climate change, we're all talking about water and rainfall and so forth. I'm worried about that too. But, however... I'm quite fortunate at the same time at St. Super in the fact that we have tremendous water reserves, um, which is which is good um, and a great thing from sort of natural water capture and so forth. In terms of these water reserves, are we talking about lakes? Are we talking about underground wells? What what do you, what do you have the draw draw off of there? Well, most people on the on, on the valley floor here have. Uh, have draw from groundwater, so wells. Um, mm -hmm. on, our, on our big ranch, the Dollarhide Ranch, we have uh, lake water, which have uh, natural water catchments. So you have a good allocation of water there for that, uh, for that vineyard. Briefly, 2020, Michael, and I'm jumping around here a little bit, we able to make any red wine. Obviously, I think production for the whole valley is going to be down because of the fires. A lot of people decided not to make wine. You know, what's happening at St. Super with the 2020 vintage? Were you able to make any cabs? We actually did not. If you had to ask me before the 2020 vintage or suggested to me before the 2020 vintage that, you know, you will not make a harvest, you'll you drop a whole season, I would have said you're a little bit crazy. But in actual fact, that's what happened in 2020. 2020, before the fires started, we, we, had, we had two days of harvest, which was all Sauvignon Blanc, which we did bottle and, and, and create. But at St. Subri, um, but the balance of the season, we, we um, actually... We called it off because uh, while we kept the harvest going, while we tried to analyse uh, the issue, we realised a little way into that, that 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 these wines were not going to be of the quality we needed to achieve, or that we do achieve, and we and and, and we made the very difficult decision to abandon that vintage from there, that point forward. You know, because we have, have to protect our brand uh, and what have you, and we work. And the whole goal of Saint Super is to make the best wine we can all the time. Um, so we're all, always chasing quality, and we just knew that we weren't going to achieve that in that season, so we chose not to do that. Very, very difficult decision. But you know what? you got to realise also that we, when the fires came through in 2020, unfortunately, we were in the thick of it. We actually had the fire burn across it, the, the, the hills on our big property. So we didn't really impact our vineyards, but the smoke did impact the crop for the season. Um, and one thing we've learned a lot more, we still don't know everything we need to know about smoke taint, which was the issue we had, but we have learned that the closer you are to the source of that, the greater your problems. And when a fire burns on your property, you're pretty darn close. Yeah, that's close. That's close. But, okay, you move forward, 2021, 2022, you're able to make some wine, so you must be happy. Yeah. So a couple of things, you know, don't forget in 2020, we had a couple of days of harvest before. So we made an out, outstanding Sauvignon Blanc, just not very much of it. And we, okay. also, and we also donated $5 from every bottle to the Napa Valley Foundation in an effort to support uh, these, these causes in the future to protect against these, these, these issues. So we did that. Uh, 2021, a dry year. We did have very light crops. Uh, we weren't on our own. A lot of people were in that situation. But again, the quality of the wines are quite remarkable. 2022, I'm very, I'm very, very optimistic about it at the moment. It's, it's, I, I, 
We'll talk again, Chuck, when when everything's in the bar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'm looking forward to tasting those wines as well. Looking back, you've been there since 1996. You went away for a year or so. Um, Is there a secret to making great wine? Because your St. Supri wines are really, really good. I mean, they're amazing. Uh, They're exceptional. Is there a secret to making great wine? Uh, Listen, I think, you know, we're a pretty friendly, collaborative industry. um, And I think that we're a lot of us are doing a really good job. In fact, probably most of us are doing a good job. And bear in mind, we all do something a little bit different just because wine is about place. So you can't do the same thing. Each of us can't do the same thing because we don't have the same vineyards in the same place. Um, and, you know, from the point of view of where I'm at here in Napa Valley, we have half of the world's soil orders in one valley. So the variation is dramatic. And also you have... San Pablo Bay sitting above San Francisco there that draws in all this fog and this cold era. So the south of the valley is dramatically different than the north of the valley from a from a heat unit perspective and so forth and fog perspective. It's a lot of variation. But but it's in essence, I think we as winemakers these days all over the place are doing a pretty are doing a good job. And uh, and is there a secret to it? I don't know. I mean everyone has their own flair and everyone has their own stuff. I grew up in Australia, as I talked about, you know, and in Australians, you know, when I went through the industry there, they were quite incredible scientists, you know, precision winemakers and the New Zealanders and what have you. And, you know, um, I got had an opportunity to make some some wines out of the Adelaide Hills. And when we were doing that, we were, we were taking, paying close attention to the wines out of New Zealand. Um, and to be quite frank, you know, one of the wines that's worked well for us uh, at Super is our Sauvignon Blanc, and which, you know, I took... I was I took our estate Sauvignon Blanc at Saint Supri to a tank fermented wine in 1996, my first year here. In hindsight, I wonder whether it was a little bit too bold because it was a dramatic adjustment in style, but it, it did well. It's always done well since, and we continue to do that same style. And it really takes a bit of a, a leaf out of that, a respect out of that Southern Hemisphere winemaking approach, that New Zealand approach, that Adelaide Hills approach. We were looking for opulence and vibrance of fruit and, and drive and a bright, crisp wine. And that's worked pretty well for us. But remember, wine's about place. And we're not in Adelaide Hills, Sauvignon Blanc. We're not in New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc. We're in California, Sauvignon Blanc. Even more so, we're in Napa Valley, Sauvignon Blanc. But we just take a little flair out of the winemaking. So is there a secret? No, there's not a secret. But all of us as winemakers come along with some history and some story that shapes our approach. Um, similarly in red wines, you know, I, I grew up in the Barossa Valley making Shiraz and Cabernet, but I've come to the California. I've been here a long time. I've become very much a Bordeaux, uh, Bordeaux-esque winemaker, a style of winemaker. Yet some of that early winemaking of Shiraz, etc., in the Barossa Valley still has had a shape to what I do with my reds now. Um, so I think I think as we go along through life as winemakers, we we a lot of wine makers, in fact, have got interns here now that are from all around the world. They come from different parts of the world. We're anxious to know about what people are doing. Why is a region famous? Why is Bordeaux so renowned? Why is Burgundy so renowned? Uh, why is Napa Valley so renowned? So as young winemakers, we, we want to learn that as, as we go through our travels and what have you, it does shape a vision and we all create our unique vision. So I think... That, that sort of lends itself to what our winemaking styles are going to be all about. <laughs> okay. So then it's safe to say then your approach to winemaking has evolved. 
over the years? You're constantly learning, right? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, I think, as I say, I think Australians were very technical winemakers when I was a young winemaker uh, working there um, and and very capable technical winemakers. And then I, when I came to California, my initial outlook was very different to my outlook today. And the fact that I, I as time has gone on, my um, observations and respect for for American winemaking has done nothing but grow and get better and bigger. Because, and then I've realised that all of us have a little bit of a different flair towards how we view what we see. I also realised that the consumer in Australia had a, has a different perspective from the consumer in, in, in America. So all of that plays a role into your vision and what you see and as you learn. But you're right, it's all an evolution. As time goes on, we learn we learn more and more and more. Uh, and in fact, I think sometimes I wonder whether time goes on, we start to reflect further back. Interesting point. Let's talk about St. Supri. Let's talk about the winery. Let's talk about your vineyards. Uh, you're located in the Rutherford um, AVA. What makes Rutherford so special within Napa? Rutherford is a remarkable location. Uh, Napa has a, has a lot of remarkable locations, but Rutherford is certainly a remarkable location. It's, a, it's renowned Cabernet country, uh, and it is great Cabernet country. We also actually have some terrific Merlot growing here as well, which is outstanding. But it certainly is a great Cabernet country. Um, it produces Cabernets of tremendous structure, but tremendous elegance, tremendous charm all at the same time. Uh, and I think um, I think that's a lot of the unique part of what we see here uh, is that uh, that type of wine. It's a really, really terrific Cabernet Sauvignon. And, you know, you talk to people in the industry when you're in Rutherford, there's an often used term called the Rutherford dust. What does Rutherford dust mean to you? <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting question, actually, because, uh, you know, you get a few different answers from different people. But for me, you know, some people think it's an aromatic. Some people think it's a flavour profile. For me, I think it's a textual thing. I think we have a – I think our, 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 our reds from Rutherford actually – have a textural feel that is a really fine, grainy sort of feel through the palate of the wine. So when we talk about reds, we talk about structure, we talk about tannin, we talk about phenolic content, and all that's true wherever you are, but that all leads up to your feel through the through your palate and and, the, and what you what your impression is after you finish your mouthful of wine. I think Rutherford, you finishes with a serious approach, serious red wine, serious Cabernet Sauvignon, um, but when you finish that mouthful of wine, you feel like there's a real air of elegance, a real air of grace about that wine at the same time. I like that description there. You've got at the Dollar Hyde Estate Vineyard, 500 acres planted or is it a little more than that? Uh, it's a right around 500. It's just over actually, but yes, about 500 at that ranch. And what gives, you know, I've had Emma Swain on the podcast, you know, your CEO, for you, what gives the Dollar Hyde, what gives uh, this this vineyard a sense of place? What gives the wines a sense of place that come from this vineyard? It's quite a remarkable location. Um, when you drive to the vineyard, you actually don't know you're right next to it until you are driving through the gate because it's, it, it is kind of a valley within, within itself. The property itself is 1,500 acres, so it's a dramatically large piece of land. We have mountains almost all the way around it, like hill, hills all the way around it. We have seven different lakes, 
which are interesting, particularly at the, the large cinema, has, has an impact on the vineyards around it, which is of a temperature uh, mineralizing impact, which is interesting. Um, but it also have a number of lots of different soils around the place, so we have a lot of variation within it. We, we, when we harvest there, we treat every block like we're a tiny little winemaker. So we have 90-odd blocks out there, parcels, and we'll bring them in and they'll go into, we'll separate those into, into individual tanks and we'll keep them separate through the vinification and separate through the maturation in the barrel uh, for about 15 months so we can analyse what we get. We treat everything like, you know, whether it comes out of a, a, a one-acre parcel or, a, or an eight-acre parcel, it's treated as a, as a separate entity and each of them have unique personalities. We have, I'm fortunate as a winemaker to have uh, sort of the legacy of Robert Scully, who created St. Supri with his initial plantings. So I'm making Cabernet off of vines that are nearly 40 years of age. And wow. um, and that and that's pretty impressive stuff. I mean, you know, these older vines, they yield less fruit, which we understand that, we accept that, so our volumes go down. But there's something magic about an old vine. They're, they produce wines that have great integrity, great in intensity, great structure, high-quality tannin, great longevity and cellarability really they're really interesting uh and you know while i grew up in the barossa valley where those vines you know the old vines are 70 90 100 years old for cabernet is not quite as long lived so 40 year old cabernet vines quite an old one particularly here in napa um and uh and they really are cool so i have that going on uh the diversity of soils we have soils where we can dig an eight foot pit and we can find fossilized ocean shells in it we have other soils where we where we can dig a, a pit and we'll find 15 inches of really cool red dirt topsoil over a fractured shale, um, fast draining fractured, fractured shale, um, different variation through the whole property. Uh, that gives us differences, gives us options. So in actual fact, when we get wines into the cellar, we get wines with different qualities, different characters, even from the same place, which gives us uh, um, blending abilities to, to create and craft unique wines. Um, and wines that have great center, great density, great profile, and great completion. So they're all benefits from, from my perspective as we're trying to make a, a, a great glass of wine, which at the end of the day is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the very, very best wine that we can. So a lot of diversity there in those 500 acres. And as you know, your role in terms of looking after these vineyards, is it hard work to keep a 40-year-old cab vine going how much longer can these um these vines give you uh juice before you have to replant well i don't totally know the answer to that chuck we work hard to maintain the health of those vines and if i talk to my friends in bordeaux they'll tell me they anticipate the life of, of a cabernet vine to be around 60 years of age or 65 or something like that we don't i, I don't like to pull out old vines because you can't plant an old vine um, you, so once you have it, it's a real asset, in my opinion. Um, weeks, and like I say, we know that as the vines become older, they will produce less, but the, the quality of what they produce enhances. And so that's a real benefit. That's a real asset, in my opinion. So we'll just keep them as healthy as we can and keep them going as long as we can. And they'll stay in the ground as long as they can maintain and, and, and enhance quality they're going to stay there. We don't care what the yield really is, as long as they keep getting better and better and better. I have had, I have in the history here, pulled some old cabinet vines out because they did, they dropped their performance, um, and we could recognise why they dropped the performance, and then realised we couldn't fix that, so so we took them out. But with with great reluctance, very sad to take out an old vine. 
um, you know, and it's and it's a great, it's very rewarding to be able to maintain an old guy. Um, so yeah, we're just going to look after those vineyards and we're going to keep them as healthy as we can for as long as we can. And enhances the story of that bottle, right? Without, without a doubt. I mean, the, the heart and soul of the Dollarhide Cabernet Sauvignon is 40-year-old vines. Okay, that's the heart and soul. I like that of the Dollarhide Cab. I like that a lot. Any new projects in the works that you can share with us? You know, new plantings, uh, new new uh, new grape varieties coming on board. Uh, we we are we're always got some sort of development going on. Um, and that's it. When you've got a when you've got over five hundred acres of vineyard, you you tend to have a rolling development situation going. Particularly with a vineyard that is as old as the one we have there, the Dollarhide Ranch, and what have you. So we're always doing that. When, when we do develop vineyards, we're looking at developing with, with new design, with the knowledge we have today that we that we didn't have 40 years ago. So the, our viticulture knowledge today is dramatically greater than what it was 40 years ago. And so our new vineyards that we put in, we're still, you know, putting, uh, we're still a believer in Cabernet, but we, we um, for example, and Bordeaux Reds generally, but what we're doing is we are improving exposure, which means row direction. Uh, and design. Um, we're looking for new um, options and opportunities of how we can enhance quality in the vineyard and how we manage them. And then, but when it comes, to, we're not doing too much with new varietals. Or it's all, albeit, I do have a, a few small little early trials going on. So okay, we're checking out. Can't say much about it because we don't know enough about it yet. Is that driven by climate change? Because you know, the, you know, the world's getting a little bit warmer. Are you looking at without naming these varieties? Are you looking like heat resistant, more heat resistant grape varieties? Or yeah, basically, the, the couple of, we only got a few vines, but they're just having a look at uh, um, you know how they perform as go through the season due to dry conditions and and heat units, uh, and just having a look at what they do. We we haven't our initial effort of that is very shallow but now that we've seen that i may need to start looking into that with a little more relevance and actually redesigning uh, an appropriate trial with with exactly those thoughts in my which is what you're saying drought tolerance and 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 the ability to handle heat and when you're looking at that you're generally looking at well I guess generally is that the right term. You're looking at sort of the Spanish varietals, essentially. Spanish varietals, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I've just, I've, I've heard that around. I just wanted to get, yeah, get your take in terms of what's going on there at uh, St. Super. Very good. Final question for this part of the uh, podcast, Michael. In your opinion, what's the biggest threat facing, say, the Napa and the California wine industry in general? Well, you know, in light of recent times, everyone's going to talk about the same thing, fires, drought. Or water supply and climate mm-hmm. change. Everyone's saying the same thing, right? Which, which you know, I can echo that, and that's fine. The other, but the other thing, of course, is in here in California, is regulation, or maybe too much of it. It becomes harder and harder and harder to to to, to be a farmer because um, regu- <laughs> there's reason for regulation, and I respect that. <laughs> but sometimes it, it seems. It, it, it seems a little bit excessive. Can you give me an example? Well, it's, we're always, I, I think about the small wine makes we have out there um, and all the permits we need for running okay. a winery, for planting a vineyard or one, running a winery and everything, everything, every hoop we have to jump through. And no sooner do we pay one permit than we there's a new one that comes out of the blue that you didn't even know about. And so, 
and they and they all come with a price tag. And I just think that for some of these little family winemakers, I just wonder. It just seems an excessive amount of management, and and okay, seems a lot of stuff. I fall, uh, yeah, no, no, I follow you. A lot of red tape, you know, more money, and it's just, yeah, I guess you know, politicians for some reason. It's the same thing in the UK. It's kind of like, you know, they make it really tough for a small business person to get to get off to get off the ground, and I don't get it. All right. Well, listen, Michael, I really enjoyed our chat, but I'm not going to let you go just yet. I've got four questions. I got four questions for you. I call this the Ben and Q&A. Give me the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready to go? Yes. What's your go-to quaffing wine this week? So, I mean, we're in summer. I drink, I drink a bit of rosé. I enjoy a little rosé. And I'm going in-house here a little bit, not a wine of mine, but a, a wine of, of my parent company uh, called Domaine de la Ile. Um, it is a rosé uh, out of Provence. It's actually uh, from a, uh, one of the my parent company's properties um, on an island in, in the Mediterranean. Uh, it's part of Provence, and they're making a rosé in this property, and it's called Domaine de Lille, um, and it's a really excellent rosé. And on that property, that's what they do. They make a rosé which I think is kind of cool, the fact that they do it with purpose, they do it with intent, uh, and that's what the property is there to, to achieve. And so, yeah, it's kind of cool. That sounds good. Living or dead, which celebrity would you want to share a bottle of your Dollar Hyde Ranch cab with? Interesting. Um, maybe someone like Harrison Ford. No, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee. Lee Jones, why is that? That's cool. I haven't had Tommy Lee Jones yet. I think Tommy Lee Jones is a cool character, and I think he'd be a super cool character sitting across the table. <laughs> I think he'd be really kind of a fun dude. And I think he'd... anyway, that's just that's a my quick thought. Sounds like a fun night. If you could make wine anywhere else in the world, where and which grape variety? Um, you know, I grew up in the Barossa Valley, so I'm a bit of a fan of the Barossa Valley. Uh, and that's all Rhone-driven, so Shiraz, Grenache, Mavedra, which I find very interesting. However, I've done that. I'm in Napa Valley now, of course. You know, I'm a big fan of Napa Valley, a big fan of Bordeaux. So if I'm going to pick another spot, I probably would have, uh, you've got to go with one of the old famous ones, and that's probably Bordeaux because I'm a Bordeaux fan. I'm a, I am like these Bordeaux-style wines. That's what we do here at St. Supri, and that probably would be where I'd swing to. All right. You'd be on the left bank then? You'd land on left yeah, bank? Probably I'd be left bank, yeah, yeah. Left yeah. bank guy. All right, very good. Last Margo. one. <laughs> Marco, Margo. there you go. Money, no object. Which bottle of California wine would you open with dinner tonight? Cannot be one of yours. So, interesting question. There's all the big ones. Of course, you'd always like to pull a cork on all the big ones that are, are renowned. But if, you, if you're going to tell me money is no object, Everyone talks about the Judgment of Paris, right? 1976 Judgment of Paris. A couple of wines were renowned, Montalena's Chardonnay, Stags Eat Wine Tellers, Cabernet Sauvignon. Both of them won that event. I've never had a chance to try them. So if, I, if money was no object and they could be found and achieved, I'd like to have those two wines. Or if I was one of them, then the Cabernet. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice shout. Very good. Well, if somebody gives you one, as a result of this podcast, I'm flying over. We're going to have it with, <laughs> right. we'll have right. it with dinner. Michael, great seeing you again, and I want to thank you for your time, and thanks for being on the road with me. It was a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thanks, Jack. Great talking with you. I want to thank Michael for being on the road with me this week. Michael is an awesome dude. 
and I got a real kick out of our chats at the winery and on the podcast. And Michael's resume is impressive, having been mentored by the legendary Peter Lehman. In baseball terms, the Babe Ruth of the Australian wine industry. And another great mentor, Frank Newman, Grange's second winemaker. Grange is considered Australia's greatest wine, and Michael must consider himself to be one lucky dude to have had them to lean on so early in his career. I have a blast talking to our state winemakers. Each is passionate about what they do and are super resilient characters. It hasn't been easy making wine in California the past 10 years. California has been faced by record drought and fires. And while Mother Nature can be fierce, winemakers like Michael persevere and continue to move forward, providing the consumer with a bottle of wine that's of the highest quality and a reflection of place. And now it's time for Wine of the Week. And my pick this week is the 2015 Dollar Hyde Cabernet Sauvignon from the Napa Valley. This is a powerful yet elegant cab that is drinking really nicely now, yet has the potential to age for a while. The Dollar Hyde cab offers aromas of blackberries, black cherries, with underlying hits of mocha, vanilla, and molasses. This rich, beautiful Napa cab is available in the United States. And in the United Kingdom, the Dollar Hyde Cab and other St. Soupery wines are distributed by Jeroboam's. And these wines can be purchased at eight Jeroboam's wine shops across central London. Across the valley, Napa is loaded with fantastic places to eat. Highway 29, the St. Helena Highway is lined with fine dining across charming towns like Yountville, St. Helena, and Calistoga. Yet speaking from experience, these towns go fairly quiet after 9 p.m. If you're looking for some action and nightlife, then Uber your way to downtown Napa. For sushi, my pick, hands down, is Hal Yamashita on Main Street. It's so good. In the mood for barbecue ribs? Grab dinner at Bounty Hunter Wine Bar and Smoking Barbecue. My good friend Tony Bartonetti is a huge fan too. For cocktails with a killer view, the Archer Hotel boasts the Sky and Vine Rooftop Bar. Fancy game of pool and tasty craft beers? Head to Bilko's Billiards. The Blue Note in Napa is the place for jazz lovers. Love a good cigar? Napa Cigars on First Street offers a great selection. And before you head back to your hotel... Finish the night off with a Scooby snack shot at Downtown Joe's. Todd Wolger and the guys at ABS Wines love them. Scooby Dooby Doo. Thank you very much for being on the road with me this week. And I hope you enjoyed our chat with Michael Schultz. And I'll be back next week talking to Nick Mantella, the owner of the wine yard in Farnham. If we can't hop on a flight to California, I'll bring California to you. Keep sharing this podcast with your family and friends. See you next week on the road with Mr. California Wine. Take it easy. Music